This is our Simon Don reading group. Uh, we're continuing our reading of imagination and invention. We are at page 139 of the translation, so we're picking up from the beginning of part four on invention. Uh, so this is the last part of the book, aside from a short conclusion. Um, so again, uh, as a sort of big picture recap, there's this general cycle of the image that Simon Don is presenting. Uh, so starting from the image in the encounter with the object, the sort of present image, uh, and then you have the uh, or sorry, starting with the anticipation of uh, of the object, so the image before the encounter with the object, uh, and then the uh, so the the image of the future, I guess, uh, and then uh, passing to the image in the encounter with the object in the present, uh, and then the third part is the um, the image after the encounter with the object, so memory or, or various phenomena that are related to memory. Uh, and then finally, the uh, last phase is invention, and invention sort of starts the whole cycle uh, at a new um, uh, at a new level. So it sort of uh, changes gear is the sort of idea or the image that I have used before. Um, so last time we we read the part. Uh, so in part three, uh, the last uh, subsection was on the symbol object. So that's what we looked at last time, and. Um, so there's uh, a variety of different phenomena that you can sort of describe as symbols. Uh, and we talked about how Simon Don has this sort of um, peculiar use of the word symbol uh, that he, he introduces in a number of other places that we've read in uh, individuation, for example, um, where he refers back to this ancient Greek practice of taking a, a stone or something uh, and breaking it in half and using the two pieces as a token so that people can recognize uh, the, the two the two parts of a the two sides of a relationship. So in the um, host guest relationship, for example, the the host's uh, family and the guest family would um, keep these tokens, and uh, their descendants could um, recognize each other by seeing how the two pieces fit together. Uh, and and those two pieces were called symbolon um, uh, or symbola uh, in the plural. Um, um, and uh, so Simon Don generally, when he talk, when he uses the term symbol, he is referring to this type of relationship between these two elements of reality or two aspects of reality that fit together in some way that they're sort of complementary to each other. But here in in part three or in in this subsection on uh, uh, memory in, or, or on the symbol object, he's using the word symbol in more of a uh, sort of traditional sense. Um, so here he's talking about um, entities that um, sort of refer to something beyond themselves or they they point to something beyond themselves. Uh, um, so one of the first instances that he brings up is um, souvenirs. Uh, and uh, so in French, you have uh, the word souvenir, um, which has the meaning of, you know, of a souvenir, like a, you know, an object that you bring back from a, a vacation or whatever, but also of memory or, or recollection. Um, so like this object is literally serving as the, the sort of kernel around which a memory is formed. Uh, and so he talks about how, um, um, yeah, when, when Lindbergh, uh, you know, who made the first transatlantic flight, um, lands in Paris, the, the crowd, um, you know, rushes forward and starts like ripping off pieces of the airplane to uh, to sort of take home as a, a souvenir. So like this um, historic event, this uh, sort of great achievement is um, 
kind of incarnated in this piece of metal or fabric or whatever it is that is taken off the plane the plane um and uh yeah so there's like this power this um sort of uh force of this event is kind of um concentrated into this souvenir uh so the and so this piece of metal or whatever serves as a symbol because it it sort of um contains the the power of everything that goes into that event uh sort of concentrated into into this one small object uh and then he talks about how um you know people want to buy uh clothes or or other things that belonged to celebrities uh and you know you still see this today um um this is not like a it's not sort of restricted to um 1960s france this is a, a sort of generalized phenomenon and probably even more powerful today than it was when he was writing um but uh yeah so these sort of mementos like from a concert or um i don't know a, a, an actor um you know a movie star um uh so these these sort of um things that uh, sort of capture or um are imbued with the the power of the famous person um, are are sort of the symbol objects that he starts with, uh, and he he connects this with um, uh, we talked about this last time. He connects this with the idea that he develops more in on the mode of existence of technical objects of this magical relation to the world or this um, magical mode of existence. And what the magical mode of existence consists in is this sort of network of um, um, notable places or remarkable places or um places that concentrate the power of a whole region uh so he talks about the, how the peak of a mountain is sort of like the the center of the mountain in in uh, of, of a mountainous region uh not in in the sense that it's like in located in the middle but um in the sense that all of the sort of um uh, magical power of the mountain region is concentrated in that one peak um and there's also these key moments in time uh, in, the, in the way that um, the new year or the, the full moon or, or um, anniversaries of some kind uh, kind of concentrate the power of a whole portion of the year. Um, and uh, uh, so then, like, even when, when you think of sort of magical ceremonies, um, you don't just do a, a ceremony in, I don't know, your backyard uh, at noon or like in the middle of the day or whatever. Um, you have to do the ceremony in a particular place that has this um, power and at a, at a particular time, you know, under the full moon or whatever. Um, so you have to sort of um, orient your behavior towards the, the network of places and times that concentrate the power of the world. Uh, and so that's what these um, symbol objects do. Um, and then he also talks about uh, how... Um, Various forms of adornment can serve as symbol objects. So things like, uh, you know, of course, clothing, but um, wigs, uh, colored fingernails, uh, jewelry, etc. Um, so these are um, um, again uh, sort of connected to the the person. Um, like you know, uh, a person's clothes are sort of part of how that person presents themselves to the world. Um, and so they're they're sort of a personal um, uh, to that person, uh, and then um, the next sort of stage of a more external externalized uh, symbol object is um, when he talks about the scepter of an emperor or the weapons of a of a soldier. Um, so these are um, symbols of 
the power, uh, like the scepter is a symbol of the power of the emperor, but it has this sort of um, more external nature in that um, it's it's something that any anyone could potentially grasp, even if it's like, uh, you know, prohibited for others than the emperor to grasp the scepter. Uh, anyone could, in principle, pick it up and uh, uh, wield the power of the emperor by, you know, using this scepter. Um, yeah, and then we go through this sort of um, more abstract discussion of um, the relationship between symbols and objects as such. So an object in the sort of psychological sense is um, an entity that is kind of purely observed. Um, so it, it doesn't have any uh, affective uh, charge for the subject. So you, you just sort of, I don't know, you're walking in the woods, you see a tree, and you don't it's not a particularly beautiful tree or a particularly ugly tree. It's not like actively impeding your progress. It's just sort of there. You just sort of notice it. It's like, you know, uh, like in Heidegger's terms, it's present at hand. It doesn't have any sort of um, connection to anything that you're, you know, trying to do at the moment. Um, and so this is an object in the psychological sense. And then a symbol um, uh, has a, a similar kind of neutrality, but in a, a different way. So it's not that, the symbol has no um, affective resonance. Instead, it has a, a sort of um, tension of a, a tense equilibrium of um, affective charge. So it, it's something that um, can be directed against me, like a, a weapon can be used to threaten me. Um, but at the same time, that weapon can I can pick it up and use it to threaten someone else. Um, so there's a sort of uh, two opposed directions of the affective charge of this weapon. And and so the weapon uh, as a symbol is, is sort of balanced between these two directions, uh, and and so this is you know how a symbol uh, differs from an object as such. Uh, yeah, so I think that's like the main points of what we saw last time. Um, yeah, were there any, was there anything else anyone wanted to bring up from last time before we start on the next one? Uh, nothing else from me. Okay, cool. Um, Angus, do you want to read the first bit of uh, the next part? Uh, let's see. Um, yeah, this subsection is a bit long, so you can just read a, a page or so. Uh, yeah, no problem. Uh, part four, invention. A, elementary invention, the role of free activity in the discovery of mediations. Subsection one, the different species of compatibility, detour, and elementary behavior. To what situation does invention correspond? To a problem, which is to say, to an interruption due to an obstacle, or a discontinuity acting as a barrier to an operative implementation, accomplissement, opératoire, that is continuous in its project. What is problematic is a situation that dualizes an action, chops it up by separating it into segments, either for lack of a middle term or because the fulfillment of one part of the action destroys another equally necessary part. The two fundamental problematic modes are hiatus and incompatibility. Both amount to an action's failure to adapt itself, adapt to itself intrinsically across the various sequences and subsets it presupposes. Solutions show up as restorations of continuity, enabling the progressiveness of operative modes along paths previously invisible within the structure of the given reality. Invention is the emergence of an extrinsic compatibility between the milieu and the organism, the milieu and the organism, and of an intrinsic compatibility between the subsets of the action. Detours, the fabrication of instruments, 
the in the association of several operators all represent different means of reestablishing intrinsic and extrinsic compatibility. Uh, when a problem is resolved, the dimension of the final act of the result encompasses in its dimensional characteristics the operative regime that produced it. For instance, in a classical tale, a rolling boulder stuck in the middle of a narrow path cannot be moved by an individual by individual travelers trying to move it separately since it is too heavy, though it is easily pushed aside by the travelers working together. Here the problem cannot be resolved as it is initially given. When the road is a place of passage where multiple individual itineraries do not compound couplage, rather the group of travelers exists virtually from the point of view of the result, since it is only at that moment that they can all resume their travel, even though they arrived at the obstacle at different times depending on their particular trip. Um, the Compounding of efforts visible in the unity of the result points back to the act of resolution and to invention. Within the conditions of the problem, the lines of a possible solution appear already appear, albeit negatively. The accumulation of people stopped by the boulder, one after the other, progressively constitutes a simultaneity of expectations and needs, thus attention towards the simultaneity of departures once the obstacle is removed. The virtual simultaneity of imagined departures points back to the simultaneity of efforts in which the solution lies. Anticipation and foresight are not enough, since each traveler is perfectly capable of imagining how he would go on walking if the boulder were pushed aside. What is needed is that anticipation return to the present by altering the structure and conditions of the ongoing action. In this case, it is collective anticipation that alters each of the individual actions by constructing a system of synergy. It's a pretty dense uh, paragraph, but there are um, some familiar themes from volume one of individuation in this, like the idea that the while the problem doesn't completely determine the result, it does already include the contours within which uh, possible resolutions will have to uh, be included. Um, and this, uh, I guess the, uh, I'm trying to see in the example of the boulder. Uh, so, you know, I assume that there is going to be a tension between two different elements, which are resolved by the invention, which is pushing the boulder out of the way. But I mean, in the tension, tension is produced by the hiatus, uh, the suspension of the journey in this case, but I'm not sure whether the two elements are like literally the path to the boulder and the path after the boulder, uh, like the resumption of the journey that need to be, or between which a resonance needs to be instituted by the resolution of the problem. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly what he has in mind here um, about the, yeah, so any, any sort of problem or Simondo has to involve a tension of some kind that will be productively um, used to formulate the solution to that problem um, and, you know, through this process of invention. Uh, here, um, I think maybe the tension, we could see it as uh, holding between these different people that are sort of stuck behind this boulder. So each of them has um, an individual journey. They're you know, probably going to different places. They arrive at different times. They um, 
have no intention of, you know, forming a group uh, as they set out on their journey. Uh, but then um, when they, you know, arrive uh, at this point on their path where the boulder is blocking the road, they, they have this tension between this sort of in, individual, um, individual sort of orientation uh, of like, um, you know, trying to get to their destination and then the, the sort of um, um, problem that this obstacle poses for them. Uh, and the solution to this problem is to invent the collective um, uh, action of pushing the boulder aside. Um, so yeah, I think the tension might be more between the individual nature of the journey and the uh, sort of um, um, obstacle presented by the boulder with the collective uh, action as the invention that resolves that tension. Um, but yeah, it's not 100% clear here what exactly we're meant to see as um, sort of the, the terms of the, uh, of the tension. Um, but yeah, in general, there's this idea of um, invention as having to do, uh, or, or sort of like the, the most elementary form of invention for Simon Don is the detour, uh, where instead of uh, like in sort of um, um, direct action, you have some sort of um, goal that you're oriented towards. It can be very simple, like, um, you know, drinking a glass of water uh, and you just sort of perform the action that brings about that, that makes that goal realized. Um, you just pick up the glass of water and drink it. Uh, there's no sort of um, deliberation or invention required to perform this action. It's just uh, immediately um, uh, evident what you have to do and you just do it. Um, but then as soon as um, there's some sort of obstacle where, like, say, the, the glass is empty, now you have to, you know, it's obviously a very uh, limited form of invention, but you have to realize, okay, where can I get water? Where can I fill up this glass? Uh, you have to, like, sort of make a, a slight detour. Instead of just picking up the glass of water and drinking it, you have to, you know, find where the water is, fill up the glass, and then drink it. Um, so um, you, uh, so this is obviously a very, you know, poor form of invention, um, but uh, this is like the sort of basic um, form of, uh, of invention is this detour where instead of just proceeding directly to a goal, you have to do something else first uh, so that eventually you can perform the action that gets you the, the goal. Um, and like an example that he, he uses in uh, individuation, uh, and I think maybe in some other texts as well, and we'll, we'll see this a little bit later, is um, this experimental setting for where it was a jaguar for whatever reason. Um, I don't know why they used a, a jaguar for this instead of a, a rat or a monkey, but um, um, this animal in its wild setting is capable of um, um, tracking prey. And like, if, for example, the prey is on the other side of a river, the, the jaguar is able to, um, you know, go up or down stream and find a spot where it can cross the river and then backtrack and pick up the trail again. So it's making a detour um, and uh, sort of re, uh, reorienting itself towards the goal after the detour. Um, whereas in a laboratory setting, uh, this animal is not capable of you know, performing some even some simpler detours that uh, you know, involve, I don't know, um, pressing one button before pressing another one or something sort of elementary like that. Um, and, and so Simon Don takes this um, capacity to engage in a detour or to um, invent uh, uh, some sort of compatibility between uh, elements of an action that are, are separated from each other 
um, he takes this as a sign of this um, sort of capacity for invention. Um, and he, he thinks that we need to look at this capacity in naturalistic settings as opposed to purely laboratory settings, because um, the laboratory setting is a kind of impoverished environment. And it um, uh, like even just the sort of anxiety provoked by the lighting and all these things in, uh, in the animal can prevent the animal from exercising this capacity that it's capable of exercising in a natural setting. Uh, so, yeah, this capacity to invent is not something that is sort of purely contained in the animal as this organism bounded by its skin. It's, it's a, a product of the interaction of the animal and its environment. Um, and so it's only in a, a particular environment, uh, uh, especially when that environment is structured as a territory of that animal, that it's capable of performing these kinds of acts of invention. Um, so yeah, I think that's um, sort of the direction that we're heading in in this section is towards more and more sophisticated forms of invention and um, uh, how this invention arises in interaction with the environment. I thought it was kind of interesting that he says that the the group of travelers exists virtually from the point of view of the result, I guess because you need the group of travelers in order for the problem to be resolved. But kind of from the other point of view, I guess from the point of view of the problem, the simultaneity of the departure of the travelers with like non-simultaneous arrivals, I guess, is also described as virtual. Um, I guess actually maybe he's saying the same thing here, that the the problem is going to, the solution of the problem, uh, you know, the, the contours of the solution are going to require both a group of travelers and a simultaneous departure. Yeah, I think the idea here, so when he talks about this virtual group of travelers, so the idea is that each individual traveler can easily imagine, like, the result of solving the problem. Like, they can easily say, like, say to themselves, okay, once this boulder is gone, I can just keep walking and, you know, continue on my path. Um, uh, so that part is, like, doesn't involve any sort of cognitive sophistication. Um, what what does involve the cognitive, uh, uh, sorry, sophistication is... Um, getting like sort of traveling backwards along the path from that departure point of you know going proceeding uh, along the rest of the path you have to sort of um intellectually work backwards from there and say okay what what would have to happen first before i can actually um proceed with my journey uh in the way that i'm imagining uh and so it's this um collective effort um, is this sort of virtual point because it's the the prerequisite for um, that imagined continuation of the journey. Uh, so you have to, you know, you, you start from this imagined continuation of the journey and then you um, work backwards from there and say, okay, if I am going to be able to continue my journey, then we need to collectively push this boulder out of the way. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, it's this kind of retroactive uh, effect of the future, uh, of the anticipation of, um, you know, uh, a certain action uh, in the future. Uh, so it, it, it's virtual in that sense, in the sense that it um, it's not something um, present or um, sort of immediately given in the environment of the, the various people that are, you know, standing around this boulder. It's something that they have to um, arrive at through some sort of intellectual process uh, and then the simultaneity of departure, again, is virtual because um, uh, 
it's only uh, as a result of the collective action that um, all of the people can can finally um, um, you know leave and and proceed on their journey. Um, so yeah, the virtuality here I think essentially just means it's something that can only be reached through an intellectual process of some kind, as opposed to something that would be um, given in the situation as you know. Uh, something I could easily achieve just directly acting on my environment. That's really interesting. And uh, later, I think he says that uh, in order to be like a proper detour, there needs to be an element of representation, which I guess is what, so you need the imagination or the like imaging um, in order to achieve the invention, as opposed to, as you said, the, the path being kind of immediately given um, and he talks about the, you know, some animals are capable of invent or of uh, kind of representing a solution in these various uh, like obstacle courses, I guess. Um, and those, I guess, the idea is that the uh, the successful uh, imagination of the solution, um, which precedes the invention, is what is what makes it kind of a property tour as the, uh, I mean, as a uh, and as an actual invention rather than uh, mere action on the environment. Yeah, this is always a difficult point in um, animal psychology um, in terms of like, if you have say like a, a classic maze setting and you have a, a rat um, that has to navigate this maze, um, you always like one of the sort of basic precautions that you have to take in this um, experimental setup is to ensure that like you have like a, one path leads to the food and the other path leads to nothing or leads to a, I don't know, electric shock or whatever. Um, uh, you have to ensure that the, um, there's nothing that's sort of immediately given, um, in the, the rat's starting position that, that sort of, uh, serves as a sign that allows the rat to just follow this sign that is present. And, uh, like if it can smell the food, for example, it will just follow the the smell and it doesn't have to actually learn anything about the maze. It just has to, you know, go in the direction where the smell is getting stronger. Um, so you want to ensure that, uh, like the rat actually has to learn the maze, uh, and, uh, and then you can sort of, um, conclude that there's some sort of internal representation of the maze in the rat's mind, um, that it actually, you know, whatever exactly that looks like inside a rat's mind, but it like whether it's an image similar to our sort of mental images or it's something completely different, um, at least there's something that, that sort of depicts the structure of the environment and, and sort of uh, allows the rat to um, locate itself in relation to the goal and then find a path that leads to the goal. Um, but if, if the rat is just sort of smelling the food from its starting point and then just following that smell, then you don't need to actually suppose that the rat uh, has any inner representation of the maze itself. It could just be following the smell and not caring whether it turns left or right or whatever. Um, uh, and it's often like, you know, our senses, our sort of relation to the world is set up in a certain way, but a rat has a very different um, sort of relation to the world in terms of what senses it relies on. It probably relies on smell much more than we do, for example. Um, so it's not always obvious to us uh, like, it's hard to exclude, um, to say def uh, definitively, that there's nothing sort of given in the, the uh, in what the rat is experiencing at the starting point of the maze that, that it can rely on to just follow and, and find the food source 
um, without forming that mental representation. Uh, like I, I remember seeing one uh, or an, an account of one study where they were trying to determine whether dogs can recognize different shapes. Like, you know, can they can they um, uh, learn that um, whenever there's a triangle on the screen, if you press this button, you get a reward, for example. Um, and they like, you know, tried to train these dogs on, on this and the dogs were, you know, successful. Um, but then they eventually realized that the dogs were not recognizing shapes. They were just recognizing how much of the screen was illuminated because the different shapes um, occupy different areas on the screen. Um, um, so once if you start like changing the, the size of the shapes, the dogs like suddenly weren't able to recognize triangles anymore. Um, uh, so like the what aspect of the environment um, sort of stands out for humans that we see, you know, we see that the screen has a triangle on it and then the dog is pressing the button and then the dog gets the reward. And, and you, you like for us, it's sort of obvious that the dog is recognizing the triangle. But what the dog is actually recognizing might be something quite different. Um, and so the, these animals might be recognizing all sorts of signs in the environment that we are not recognizing um, and that are much harder for us to sort of um, decipher. Uh, and um, so it, it's very hard in an experimental setting to like exclude the possibility of any of these sort of sign recognition processes that um, allow the animal to reach the goal without having to um, use this sort of intellectual detour operation. Uh, and so like forcing an animal to make this kind of intellectual detour is, uh, or uh, proving that an animal is doing this is very difficult. Uh, I just wanted to point out at the end of this, paragraph um it seems like there's a so this is kind of simultaneous individual individuation of like a kind a kind of collective at least of these two travelers and of uh, an invention um and in volume one he talks a couple of places about how like the resolution of perception into action requires the collective um but didn't give really any examples of what that might look like i know he means it in a much broader sense than like you know i don't think he means that uh action in the collective is always an invention but this might be um i think this is an instance of how uh how perception is resolved into action in a collective but i think that in general i mean i think in volume one it's just kind of all all action is um intersubjective in a way but this might be an example of that yeah i think that passage i think if i remember correctly we had some difficulty with that passage in in individuation volume one um and sort of making sense of what exactly he's he's saying there um but i think here at least um like i think the collective in the sort of proper sense of the term for simon Dome is always an invention or is the result of an invention um uh, so, like, there are various groupings that are not collectives, um, like um, uh, an office setting um, is, is not a collective because each person is sort of assigned to a particular role. Uh, you have a, a, a certain job you have to do, an office or a factory or whatever. Um, everyone has their individual role that they're assigned, and this is not a collective. Uh, and then likewise, um, or sort of the, the opposite extreme is a, a market um, where each agent is just sort of... Um, uh, acting in their own interests and then interacting only insofar as it's um, uh, as it like the interaction is um, a part of what they have to do to um, achieve their own interests. Uh, these are two forms of um, groupings of of people or of subjects 
that uh, are not collectives. And so a collective is something much more uh, uh, subtle and sort of ambiguous, um, but it, it, it always involves this um, element of invention because a collective is never something that is already given. Um, it's only like you can only ever form a collective with someone else by means of inventing something new that wasn't there before the collective was formed. Uh, and so, yeah, I think collective and invention are sort of um, coordinate concepts for Simon Dong. Right. Yeah. Now that I uh, thinking about it, I, I think he talks about the collective in terms of like the resolution of a problem in volume one in a couple of places. It kind of ties in uh, with um, some of like Guattari's papers on different kinds of groups and for Guattari, like a subject group, which is, I guess, um, the, a group that avoids uh, certain like destructive, uh, repetitive group behaviors. Subject group is a group that has a common goal, uh, like a common artistic project, for instance, or, um, I mean, any kind of common goal. So I think this kind of works with that idea. Yeah, I think that, that makes sense. Um, and the, the one thing to sort of keep in mind, though, is that we, we saw in volume one that the collective um, can also, like, uh, subjects can be related to the collective uh, through this, like he talks about this ordeal of uh, solitude. Um, so like the the hero or the saint or whoever can be sort of oriented towards the collective or related to the collective, even if they're like um, sort of living in a cave and meditating on their own or something like that. Um, they can have, um, yeah, so the relationship to the collective is not necessarily um, an actual sort of uh, uh, social interaction with other people. It's um something again more sort of mysterious than that um yeah so just sort of writing poetry in isolation uh and and this maybe we can connect this with uh, like um Deleuze and Guattari talk about this um the people to come uh like you know you write like a, a writer might be writing sort of very hermetic um uh text that no one sort of uh understands in the time and place that they're writing but then uh, they're writing like for the sake of a of a, a collective that doesn't exist yet, they're, and and so they're sort of calling that collective into being through their writing. Um, um, so yeah, these these types of relationships to a collective are um, much less uh, immediate than um, than sort of like you know I don't know pushing a boulder aside or something like that. So and again like this. Boulder example is meant to be sort of the most elementary form of collective you can you can picture. Um, you know, it's just uh, there's a sort of immediate obstacle and there's a an obvious solution, and um, um, and then you uh, you know the collective forms and then it sort of dissolves right away and each of the um, people just sort of goes their own way afterwards. Um, uh, yeah, I can't remember where they draw that line from. I'm not sure if it's Rimbaud or or. Um, I was thinking it was from Kafka, but I, I'm maybe misremembering that. Um, um, but yeah, I don't know where they draw that line from, but they use it um, on many occasions. Um, but yeah, um, I think we can think of a collective as like the the collective and the invention are, are sort of um, co-occurring uh, phenomena. Like you, you only ever have a collective through invention and um, invention even if it's done by an individual um, in isolation, it, it's always sort of calling a collective into being, even if that collective might never like um, sort of be manifested as a group of individual people. 
Yeah, that's great. I I remember, uh, I think in the conclusion, he like explicitly talks about like non-historically simultaneous uh, collective, which I remember reminded me of um, uh, in Being in Time. I think there's a part where Heidegger talks about uh, like reciprocative rejoinder between like a Dasein that is here and a Dasein that has been here, um, which is kind of a similar idea, I think. Yeah, I'm just trying to remember that bit in Being in Time. So is it in connection with um, historicity in uh, Division 2, um, where, where he's talking about the, yeah, the, the way that Dasein is historically situated? I think, yeah, I think so. I want to say it's section 74, but I could be wrong. Right, okay, yeah. Um, yeah, so, like, this is a sort of, um, like, central point of, like, a hermeneutic understanding of history, like, in the way that, that Heidegger and, and Gadamer and other people in that vein, um, like, understand history. So you, um, history is not obviously, uh, for this kind of understanding, uh, is not just like a, a linear sequence of events, but there's a kind of, um, relationship of, um, uh, the subject or the, you know, the, the person who is located in history, that person might be connected to, um, you know, some text that was written hundreds of years earlier. Uh, like you can think of the way that, uh, religious communities, for example, are, um, structured around the use of a particular text. Uh, those texts might have been written hundreds or, or thousands of years before that community is um, sort of operating. Uh, but and like the uh, the daily life of that community is sort of re um, re reinterpreting, I guess, in in a sense, the text, but not necessarily changing the interpretation, but just sort of giving new life to the to the text um, by means of sort of structuring their life around that text. So like just by virtue of reading a text every day or or on a regular basis and sort of um you know orienting your life around you know the teachings of a text and, and saying I'm sort of acting in this way because the text tells me to do so. Um by by virtue of doing this you're sort of um making that text uh, a living document as opposed to just like you know some ink on a page sitting on a shelf somewhere. Um, uh, and so, yeah, this uh, sort of uh, collective, um, you know, this religious community is um, is inventing the text anew uh, each time that they read it or each time that they call upon the text to um, determine what to do in a concrete situation. Uh, so, yeah, I think that's a similar point to what Simon Dong was talking about, how, about how invention and collective are sort of coordinate concepts. Okay, so we can go on to the next page. We uh, spent a long time on one page, but yeah, the, it was uh, 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 there's a lot of content in that one page. Um, but yeah, let's go on to the next page. Uh, if I can get a volunteer to read uh, a page or so. Yeah, sure, I can read. Uh, sorry, I just um, have my being in time out looking at the section. There. Yeah, you can find the, uh, the reference for us later. Um, that would be great. Um, so yeah, we're on page 140. Uh, we're at, hence there is a structuring. Okay, give me a second. My pagination is off, so I'll have to search for that. Oh, okay. Oh, you're in the PDF, right? Yeah. Okay, it's, got uh, it. It's like one, one page in from the start of part four, if that helps. No, I got it. Okay, I'm here. Hence, there is a structuring return of the content of the anticipation onto the formula of the present action. It is a return of information, or rather, a return of organization, whose source is of the order of magnitude of the result. The regime of the operation thought of as carried out and complete Invention sets up a certain kind of retroaction, a recurring input or feedback, 
which goes from the regime of the completed result to the organization of the means and subsets within a mode of compatibility. In the example of the boulder, the organization of compatibility in the form of synergy amounts to setting the force of each traveler against a fraction of the boulder to be moved. Since the boulder is not divisible, this can take place only if the boulder is pushed at the same moment by all the travelers. The root of the solution is a communication between two orders of magnitude, that of the result, the road reopened to all, and that of the problem event, a barrier across the path of each one, whose data are altered. Within the new perspective of a collective and no longer individual result, the operation amounts to each traveler moving a fraction of the boulder, the collective result is still compatible with the individual result, the path being open to each one when it is open to the group. Similarly, the individual action of pushing is compatible with the sum of the actions of other individuals, thanks to the additive simultaneity of parallel thrust. It is this intrinsic compatibility that enables the extrinsic compatibility of the relation between a single person's force and the weight of a fraction of the boulder. Uh, should I go on? Uh, yeah, you can continue up to the, the next paragraph break, I think, on the next page. Okay. In such a case, invention is facilitated by the fact that the subjects are at the same time virtual operators. The interruption of the action caused by the problem event prompts a shift to the order of magnitude of the result, which is that of compatibility. The different interruptions of the originally independent trips generates the collective of stopped travelers, thereby creating through a negative effect the field within which the compatible action can unfold. The association through a community of intentions within a homogeneous homogeneous group is a particular case, since it requires neither instrumental mediation nor a division of labor. As soon as the problem can find a solution only in an order of magnitude very different than that of the individual and of the elementary gesture, because of size or complexity, it becomes necessary to resort to heterogeneous me mediations, and the task of invention bearing on these mediations is considerable. But invention preserves its functional place as a transfer system between two different orders of magnitude. Simple machines such as a lever or a capstan, even the inclined plane or the winch display in the, their structure, the essential function of transfer, such devices materialize. Oh, sorry, they, they display in their structure the essential function of transfer, such devices materialize. Sorry. With a capstan or a hoist, a single operator in each of his gestures acts as if he were moving the fraction of the load that is compatible with his strength, yet he moves the entire indivisible load albeit only a small distance. Invention in such a case, while respecting the principle of conservation of work, consists in varying both factors, intensity of force and displacement, in order to adapt them to the capacities of the organism of the operator. The problem is solved when a communication is established between the action system of the subject who encounters the problem and the regime of reality of the result. The subject is part of the order of reality in which the problem is posed. He is not part of the order of imagined results. Invention is the discovery of mediation between two orders, a mediation thanks to which the action system of the subject may gain purchase on the production of the result through coordinated action. Right, so this, I think, helps make clear what we were discussing earlier about the, the, the problem in, and the two um, terms of the tension that make up the problem. So in the case of the boulder, we have... Um, uh, the, the sort of tension is between the two orders of magnitude that, you know, the subject is capable of pushing, say, 100 pounds, but the boulder weighs 1,000 pounds. Um, uh, so there's this difference of order of magnitude that has to be bridged, um, in this case, by the collective push of the, of the, uh, the I don't know, 10 people that are stuck behind this boulder. Um, uh, and then all these other sort of instruments um, or tools that he um, 
described here, they again serve to um, bridge between different orders of magnitude, like a pulley allows you to use um, uh, horizontal movement um, to, uh, to it sort of translates horizontal movement into vertical displacement. Um, by pulling on this rope horizontally, you, you lift uh, a heavy object vertically uh, a smaller distance. And so uh, a heavy, um, I don't know, barrel or case or whatever that you couldn't lift up, uh, you know, you couldn't pick it up uh, just, you know, you know, with your hands and lift it, um, I don't know, three meters up onto the hold of a ship. Um, if you attach the pulley to it and then you just pull the rope horizontally, then you can um, you can uh, lift the object um, through like a longer uh, by pulling horizontally over a longer distance. You lift the object vertically over a shorter distance um, or again, a lever, any of these sort of simple machines. Um, you um, you're sort of um, restructuring the situation in such a way as to bridge a difference of orders of magnitude. Um, and so in these cases, it's a very simple or a relatively simple um, uh, difference. It's just, you know, I can lift X pounds of weight and this object is, you know, uh, Y pounds, which is greater than X. And so I need to find a, uh, an alternate way of lifting this object that doesn't involve just picking it up with my hands. Um, uh, and so, uh, yeah, it's just a sort of restructuring of the the angles and the directions of motion so that the the force that you're able to exert is um, exercised uh, in a different way and uh, you know you bring about the motion of the object that you want um, in a sort of indirect manner uh, and this allows you to bridge between the 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 two different sizes of the you know the amount that you're capable of, of the amount of force you're capable of exerting and the amount of force it takes to actually move the object um, uh, but in other situations, it's a, a more um, it's a more complicated or uh, less direct um, relationship between the goal and the means that you have available to you. Um, so I don't know if uh, like uh, I'm trying to think of an example here, but uh, I don't know if if the goal is I want to get across the river, um, and the river is you know bigger than I can swim across, or it you know has a current that I can't. Uh, I can't, it's too strong for me to swim across or whatever, then, um, you know, I might eventually come up with the idea of building a boat. Uh, I might, you know, see some logs floating across the river and think, you know, it would be easier for me to get across if I could sit on a log and, and sort of paddle or something like that. Like you, you sort of, um, you know, find these mediating points uh, between the goal that you can't reach uh, and your, your actual capacities that you, of actions that you can perform. Um, and uh, and then these mediating terms, you might need like a, a whole series of mediating terms, like um, to to build the boat, you might have to chop down a tree, and then you might have to hollow out the log, or like there might be a whole series of steps you have to take before you can um, finally have your boat and then get across the river and you know continue your journey or whatever it is you wanted to do. Um, so each each step of the mediation might um, require you know further mediations between those steps. Um, and this is this is what makes certain inventions more complex than others. Um, so, like, yeah, the invention of a lever is a, a fairly simple um, invention, uh, like uh, something that you can just sort of stick a, a branch underneath a, a stone and, and lift it up, and and um, you know, sort of sort of happen upon the solution. Um, but um, uh, more more complicated um, devices or more complicated inventions require multiple steps of mediation 
And so there's going to be multiple different um, orders of magnitude that are bridged through the different steps of the invention. This kind of makes me think of uh, what little I've read from Laurent Garon um, and what Stiegler says about him. Um, but the idea that there has to be in like human tool use, there has to be this some first moment when there's a move from like the use of like already broken stones as tools to the kind of deliberate fracturing of a stone to use as a tool, which I think can be characterized in this uh, this process that he calls as a recurring input or feedback in this first paragraph, but is also just like, uh, you know, teleological in the sense that the concept has to be present at the beginning of the action in order to effectuate it, I guess, because it's, it has to be, um, you have to be sort of conscious of the, you know, where conscious of this um, concept that is different from what is immediately given to you. Yeah, I've only read a little bit of Le Roi Gourin, um, so I, I, I can't really comment on that connection. But um, yeah, like older texts, um, you sometimes see like the distinctive trait of human beings um, specified as tool use, that humans, unlike other animals, humans use tools. And that turns out not to be true. I mean, and it, obviously it's true that humans do use tools, but there are many other animals that, that use tools as well. Um, uh, and then sort of the, the next sort of step of trying to specify what is um, unique about humans is to say that humans are the only animals that, that build tools, that create tools out of, um, that instead of just picking up, um, you know, aspects of the environment they're already given. And that also turns out not to be quite true, but there are fewer animals that, um, uh, like um, chimpanzees, if I remember correctly, they will um, pick up a branch or a stick or something and strip off the leaves or the any any irregularities, and then use the the stripped stick. They'll stick it into an ant nest and then pick up a bunch of ants and eat them. Um, so like they're not just sort of picking up uh, a branch um, and using it immediately. They're taking the branch and then um, doing stuff to it. Uh, yeah, and there's a crow doing the same thing. Uh, yeah, so they they will um, they'll pick up a branch. Um, you know manipulate the branch to make it have the desired properties that will allow it to serve as a tool and then use that tool um to collect food which is the goal um so it's a it's not just a it's a two-step detour like not just using a tool to achieve a goal but um acting on something to turn it into a tool and then using that tool to achieve a goal um so there are fewer animals that are capable of doing this than like many animals are capable of using tools um that they pick up from the environment and then a, a smaller set of animals is capable of um, uh, modifying elements of the environment uh, and then using those modified elements as tools um, but again it's, it's it's not unique to humans uh, because you know we see chimpanzees um, I think some crows uh, um, yeah so there are a variety of animals that um, that do this they, they are able to produce tools um, what maybe is unique to humans is the use of tools to um to create new tools like um so humans not we don't just pick up a stick uh and then strip the branches and then uh use it to um to uh you know gather food or whatever but you might um a human even in a uh like the early um 
stone tools, like you would use a, a you'd um, fracture stones to produce one type of uh, knife, for example, or axe head or whatever, uh, and then use that tool to um, to break other to I don't know um, carve uh, a wooden tool, for example. So using one tool to create a second tool, and then using that second tool to achieve a goal. Um, I, I don't know of any instances where other animals um, use a tool to produce a second tool. Um, so that would be like a three-step uh, detour. Um, I, I haven't heard of that, but it's possible that it does exist. Um, um, but yeah, so that seems to be, um, at least as far as I know, uh, unique to humans. It, it's so like a multi-step tool detour where you're using one tool to produce a, a second tool. Um, and, and of course, they're like, one of the difficulties of uh, studying this kind of behavior is that um, um, uh, only stone tools are likely to survive, like anything made of wood or uh, bone or whatever. Uh, these tools will most likely decay over thousands of years. And, uh, and so we don't see the, the intermediate products. We only see the, the um, first stone tool. Uh, and so we have to sort of guess, you know, what, what the, the stone tool might have been used for. Um, so yeah, it's a uh, it's a very difficult task to try to reconstruct, um, you know, what these tool use processes might have looked like in early hominids, for example. From what I understand about Stiegler, I might be getting this wrong, but um, the I, I think he emphasizes the like the necessary temporality or the um, the fact that the creation of a tool i mean i guess this would apply for apply to crows and chimpanzees and octopuses or any other animals as well but you have to have this uh like a combination of uh memory and foresight um which kind of come together or are actualized in the construction and use of the tool and it seems like simon don has a similar emphasis here yeah, so this is this bit about um, retroaction or feedback is that so you have a desired future state and then you have to this uh, representation of this future state has to sort of feedback on my um, current actions. I have to sort of um, work backwards from like, you know, there are a bunch of ants in this nest that I want to get to. My fingers are too big to fit in the hole. Um, how, how can I, you know, uh, modify the environment in such a way that I can get at the ants? Um, and, uh, and then, you know, some, at some point this, um, inventive chimpanzee figured out, I can take the stick, I can strip the branches off and then I can, uh, I can, um, stick the, the stick into the hole and, uh, collect the ant that way. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, um, a sort of, you know, uh, taking these incompatible elements of the world, you know, the ants in their nests and me outside hungry, um, uh, you know, I can find a way of bridging between these incompatible elements um, using a stick that I've uh, stripped the leaves off of. Um, so this, yeah, th this um, future state of me eating the ants is is sort of brought about, um, or is is the um, uh, goal towards which the action is oriented, and uh, you know, the this goal is what uh, makes me uh, perform this detour. Uh, so yeah, it's um, temporality is definitely uh, a part of the structure of any sort of uh, detour action. Like it's only a detour if it's actually um, oriented towards a goal. Otherwise, it's just sort of um, 
uh, trial and error, like which is also you know something a lot of animals do. Um, you know, the if you're a monkey trying to get into uh, an ant nest, you might just try poking it with various objects until something works. Um, that's another way of th- you know solving a problem, um, but is distinct from you know actually grasping the idea that you know this stick has to be modified in such a way that it fits into this hole, and then I can get the ants. Um, um, like the the monkey might not be quite as um, intellectually sophisticated as the chimpanzee, uh, you know, by just trying a bunch of things until they finally get the ants. Whereas the chimpanzee has a, a sort of grasp of the situation and understands like the geometry of the stick in relation to the hole and how the stick has to be modified to fit into the hole. Um, and so, yeah, the the goal, um, the it's only because there's this goal that structures the whole behavior of the animal that we recognize this behavior as a detour and not just as a kind of trial and error. Um, okay, let's do one more uh, reading, um, and then we can discuss and then uh, stop there for today. Um, I think is probably a good amount, uh, so I can read the next page or so. <clears throat> for the problems related to moving loads, there is a problem when the action system and corporeal strength are not immediately efficacious. The most elementary inventions amount to using an adaptive mediator that links the regime of the results to the aptitudes of the operator. The human body, for instance, is ineffective for transporting a liquid. An intermediary solid is necessary, like a goat skin or a barrel, that serves as an envelope with respect to the liquid uh, and as a maneuverable solid with respect to the human organism. The same goes for pulverized substances or small objects that must be placed in a bag or better, a pouch with a strap appropriate for carrying on one's shoulder. When it is the volume of the load that causes the problem, the mediating object is a pole or a platter like those hunters use for large game. Finally, when the problem comes from the disproportion between the force of the operator and the mass of the load, the mediating object belongs to the general category of impedance adapters described in earlier examples. These various mediations have a common essence as adaptation systems. The molecules of a liquid or the particles of powder are of an order of magnitude that does not make them easily maneuverable by the human body without an intermediary object which gathers them by the billions. Solid loads, though they cannot be divided, are manipulated with the aid of machines that bring about an adaptation of forces. In both cases, the organism of the operator, in acting on the intermediary object, operates as though it dealt with a solid object of an order of magnitude that is homogeneous with it, and with physical chemical characteristics compatible with the conservation of the organism. Mid-range temperatures, non-sharp edges, non-toxic and non-corrosive composition, etc. Intermediary objects are required to safeguard the body's integrity whenever the object is, in one of its characteristics, too heterogeneous with respect to the organism. Extreme temperature, acidity, causticness, toxicity, etc. Through invention, the intrinsic compatibility of the organism extends to a situation which, initially, as a problem, does not admit such a compatibility. But there are different levels in the discovery of mediations that result in compatibility. If mediation consists in merely in modifying or supplementing an operative mode, it is less complex than if it requires an intermediary object whose selection and use call for immediate operative modes. The detour through an instrument is not just an operative detour. It presupposes a cognitive detour, a subordination of the actional chain of selection or fabrication of the object to the pursuit of of the end with a temporary substitution of the instrument object for the end object. An intermediary case between inventions of detour and instrumental mediations is the use of animals or more generally living beings as intermediary objects which one need not build but only choose, capture, train, and develop. The large class of domestic animals and cultivated plants was likely among the first depositories of the inventive activity of the human species at a time when instruments were still few and rudimentary. This category of modified living beings that preserve their spontaneity 
and capacity for self-reproduction is comparable to an intermediary object with multiple properties. Training is the institution of a detour in behavior in the animal, but the beneficiaries of this detour are humans. The study of situations involving a detour has generally been conducted to measure the intelligence of various animal species. We should nonetheless note that the various experimental situations allow measurement only when basic conditions are similar. For a great many species, however, the pursuit of a goal in relation to which a detour behavior could occur cannot be dissociated from the, the pre-existing organization of a territory. It is in accordance with the differentiated lines of this territory that a detour is possible in the form of a change in itinerary of relinquishing a main itinerary in favor of a less trammeled secondary itinerary that is not random and is already marked in the same way as the main itinerary. In other words, possible detours are part of the territory. They were predetermined at the moment it was surveyed, and they are the result of a learning experience, usually from early in life, in which the images directing action were formed. Outside of the territory, the detour that is feasible without a prior organization of the territory is a detour at a short distance from the goal, the goal being perceptible but not directly attainable, which corresponds only to the terminal phase of a behavior. To this first reservation concerning the generality of the detour behavior as invention, a second can be added. The detour, for a given species, belongs to a definite behavior corresponding to a determined motivation, a certain level of vigilance, behaviors of predation or flight, etc. Sometimes the detour is spontaneous in a definite situation and is actually part of the action system of the animal, with imperceptible transitions from simple motor schemas, such as the twisted leap of the rabbit on the run, to more complex specific behaviors, the zigzagging flight of the hare, and to the quote-unquote maneuvers of females leading the predator away from their offspring, quail or seal. The detour emerges as a modality of flight or defense as much as an aspect of the pursuit of prey enabling the predator to get close without be being seen or scented. In this case, the detour is not exactly a detour in relation to a goal, but a specific mode of action. It is only in the final phase of the, of the behavior that, close to shelter or nearing the prey, we can speak of a detour in the anthropomorphic sense of the term. What occurs then for the animal is the true substitution of a mode of action by another, for instance, the substitution of the final leap of the predator by extending the slow crawl of the approach. In a general manner, then, it is in terms of behavior flexibility that problems of detours corresponding to the majority of experimental situations are posed, rather than in terms of the invention of a new trajectory. To be able to detour, the animal must first reach the category of behavior within which the detour exists, despite types of stimulation apt to trigger, for instance, rectilinear leaping or flying, but not behaviors that include detour. It is this change of category or behavioral class that is not always possible or requires learning. Hence, a detour made possible during exploration may not be available during flight because the behavioral class has changed. In such conditions, can a detour be considered as an invention within animal behavior? Uh, right, so here's um, some discussion of different kinds of detour. Um, so in the case of moving objects, like uh, human, um, the problem for humans of moving different objects or picking up different objects and putting them in a, a certain place. Um, so we, our hands and arms and everything are, are perfectly adequate when it comes to um, sort of medium-sized solid objects, uh, you know, a stone or an apple or a, a tree branch or whatever. Um, but if you're dealing with um, uh, a liquid like water um, or pile of particles of, of grain or sand or whatever, um, you know, anyone who's tried to build a sand castle or whatever has, uh, experience that it's not that easy to pick up um, sand and transport it, uh, especially over long distances. Um, uh, it's uh, and even harder to, you know, carry water uh, in your hands. Um, so here we have a, a sort of problem of incompatibility of the um, 
capacities of the human body and of uh, you know a, a problem of moving a liquid or uh, a part, uh, some sort of powder. Um, so you, the solution is to envelop the liquid or the powder in some sort of um, boundary, uh, like a, a goat skin, for example, um, and then this uh, boundary serves as a, a, a solid object for human um, hands. Uh, you can pick up the goat skin and just uh, the same way that you would pick up, um, I don't know, a stone. Um, uh, but then uh, internally, it serves as a, a boundary for the liquid. Um, so it, it sort of mediates between this substance that is very difficult for humans to transport using just their hands or just their um, naked body. Um, it mediates between the human body and the problem of transporting the, the liquid and uh, sort of um, bridges between these two incompatible terms. Uh, so in these cases, it's, um, these are somewhat more complex than just, um, you know, uh, moving a, a, an object that's too heavy for me and then, um, you know, getting three, four people to push simultaneously. So here, there's a, a certain heterogeneity between the goal of moving the object and the properties of the human body that um, requires this invention of something that doesn't, you know, resemble any of the pieces of the problem. So there's nothing, if I'm, you know, sitting next to um, a pond or a, a river or whatever, and I'm thinking, you know, it'd be great if I could get this water to my my house, which is, you know, located uh, 100 meters away or something like that. Um, there's nothing in the situation that sort of shows me that um, a goat skin would be the solution to the problem. It's something that I have to figure out. Um, I have to have some sort of insight into the properties of the of the goat skin and of the water and my hands and everything. I have to grasp all of this together and then, you know, figure out that this goat skin would serve as a an adequate um, vessel for transporting the the water um so yeah this is a a, a more uh, a less direct mediation than just pushing the boulder with um, you know a group of other people um and so what this means is that um i'm sort of extending my capacities as a, a living being like as uh you know a living being has a certain uh, repertoire of behavioral capacities of you know thing actions that it can perform uh, but by means of these um, technical objects, I'm extending that capacity so I can I can now transport um, liquids. I can uh, use a pair of tongs to pick up a, a something that's too hot for me to touch, for example. Um, you can you know continue um, extending the boundaries of what actions I can perform in a way that uh, would not have been possible without these technical objects. And so this is what Simondon talks about, um, or, you know, in connection with this, he talks about how, uh, and this is what I mentioned earlier, about how animals um, in a laboratory setting might not be able to perform detours that um, they're actually quite uh, easily capable of performing in the wild. Um, and so this is uh, the relationship between the the invention or detour behavior and um, the, the environment of the animal. So... Um, Animals have, uh, they, their environment is often structured in terms of a territory, um, like this is my home, this is like the, uh, like it's a, I don't know, a nest or a burrow or whatever. Um, and then the, the um, space around that home is, you know, part of the territory. There are certain paths that it knows well, um, there are, you know, it knows that it can hide under this bush or um, it can climb this tree or whatever. Uh, and so in, in that territory, it has sort of a, pre, um, a 
a pre-given understanding. It's learned all the different detours that it, it can perform. Uh, whereas in the laboratory setting, it's this sort of, I don't know, uh, an empty cage or a bare um, room uh, with harsh lighting that, it, in, you know, it's like uh, sort of isolated in this room. Uh, and then it has to figure out how, you know, how can I make a detour and um, reach my goal? Uh, and so in this setting, it has no sort of reference point. It doesn't have, it hasn't learned how to navigate this environment. And so it, it's not capable of performing that detour. So again, the, the detour behavior or this invention behavior is a product of the animal in interaction with its environment and not just of the animal sort of in isolation. And yeah, so in the that last paragraph, he gives um, a few examples of um, different types of detour behavior that certain animals exhibit. So like um, some prey animals, for example, when they're uh, running away from a predator, they will run in a zigzag pattern. Um, and, and that makes it harder for the predator to um, sort of predict where the animal is going to be at the next step. So you, you can't just sort of jump and, and you know, uh, catch the animal just by um, uh, extrapolating its path uh, as it's running because its, its path is constantly changing. Um, and then there's more, like, and so that's a relatively unsophisticated detour. Um, uh, it's just, uh, like, so in this case, you have um, the sort of immediate goal is escaping from the predator um, and, you know, getting as far away from the predator as possible. Um, but uh, the the sort of detour is to travel in a zigzag and not, not in a straight line, um, which uh, actually makes you slower at getting away from the predator, but it um, makes it harder for the predator to cut you off. Um, uh, so, but this is fairly um, simple kind of detour behavior, but then there's more sophisticated ones. So there are certain animals where the mother, uh, if the mother is separated from the infants, for example, the mother will run in the opposite direction from the, the infants in the nest. Um, and so the, the mother will lead the predator away from the, the nest. Um, and in that way, they're, they're sort of um, protecting their, their offspring. Um, so here, again, the, the nest is sort of the, the location of safety that um, would ultimately be the goal for the animal to reach, the, the prey animal to, to you know, um, uh, reach safety in the nest. But they actually run in the opposite direction, um, away from the goal um, to lead the predator in the other direction. And then eventually, you know, if all goes well for the prey animal, they lose the predator and then they can, you know, backtrack and, and return to the nest. Um, but, um, yeah, so this is, uh, a somewhat more complicated behavior because it involves, um, not just the one animal, but the animal has to recognize that, um, its offspring are vulnerable to this predator and, uh, you know, perform this action of leading the predator away from the nest. Uh, and then like Simon Lo doesn't describe these types of cases, but the things that we talked about with, you know, chimpanzees and crows that use tools are even more um, indirect because here um, it's not a relationship to a predator that is immediately in my environment, but it's um, it's my you know desire to get at these ants that I can't even see right now that I know are in this tree or or wherever. Um, um, it's it's this um, knowledge of the situation that is not um, based on an immediate perception that I am using to um, uh, as as like my goal term and then I um, you know take a detour by picking up this tool and then 
using that tool to um, get at the ants that are hidden in the tree. So um, yeah, this is an even more indirect form of uh, of detour. I know we're stopping at this paragraph, but it, so it seems like he's, I think in the next paragraph he's going to say this, but it seems like the point is that um, every invention is a detour, but not every detour is necessarily an invention. Like the rabbit that's, you know, just does a twisting leap as it's running away from a predator wouldn't be an invention because it doesn't require this um, uh, kind of feedback or um, uh, teleological use of a concept. Yeah, I think um, I think for Simon Don, he sees a, a sort of continuity between these terms, but um, like maybe the, like the most elementary behavior that uh, the most elementary form of detour, like the rabbit running in a zigzag pattern. Um, is not properly speaking an invention um, because this is uh, something that rabbits do without having to sort of come up with the idea of doing it. Um, like, you know, uh, if you raise a rabbit in uh, captivity uh, and then it's chased by a predator, it will probably do this without having, uh, you know, had to think about it or having to, to sort of come up with this idea. Um, so it's, it's maybe instinctive in that sense. Uh, so it's not an invention, properly speaking. Um, um, but yeah, I think there's a, for Simon Dong, there's a continuity between this most elementary detour and then the very elaborate detours that humans are capable of, like, you know, deciding that this goat skin would be a good use, a good way of transporting water. Um, so, um, yeah, the, the most elementary forms of, of detours probably are not inventions in the proper sense of the term. Um, but all inventions are detours of, of you know, it could be multiple steps of detour. Um, like even in the case of the goat skin, it's a fairly um, simple tool, but I have to actually, you know, uh, I don't know, catch a goat or raise a goat and then kill it and then, you know, take the skin and, you know, do whatever processing on it um, that needs to be done uh, before I can actually use it to, um, to uh, you know, transport water. So it's not, uh, it's like multiple steps um, of mediation to actually get to my goal of transporting water. Uh, so this, um, again, is just like a much more complicated, much more elaborate detour behavior, that is, but it's in continuity with the rabbit running in a zigzag pattern. I'd be interested to see if, if Simon Don talks about um, the invention of a work of art um, later in the book, because what this kind of makes me think of is um, in the Critique of Judgment, Kant talks about the creation of a work of art as uh not involving a a concept um like it you can't have a concept in mind um in order uh in order to create an artwork but the idea of having some kind of uh image or representation and you know present to your mind in advance of the action seems to be necessary for invention for Simon Don. Yeah, I think it would be interesting. I, I don't think he does talk about artworks in this part, but I, I may be misremembering. Um, but yeah, it's, it's also interesting to potentially make a distinction between um, having a concept that guides my action and having an image that guides my action. Um, you know, a concept is something intellectual. Like I, in the case of the goat skin, I might need to grasp, have a sort of intuitive grasp of the physics of liquids and um, surfaces and membranes and things like that, uh, even if I don't have an explicit theory of, you know, how fluids operate or whatever, um, I still have some sort of grasp that, you know, liquids um, 
are hard to transport in my hands, but if I put them in, if I put this liquid into this skin, then I can transport it much more easily. Um, uh, so there's a sort of intellectual grasp of the uh, properties of the various objects that I want to manipulate. Um, but in other cases, there might be uh, the invention process might be guided um, not not so much by an intellectual grasp of the properties of the objects I want to manipulate, but instead by an image. Um, and like Simon Do, I think uh, I think it was in the introduction in this text, or maybe it was somewhere else. But um, he talks about um, how uh, humans have long had this uh, image of flight. Um, you know, of course. Uh, heavier than air flight was only invented at the beginning of the 20th century or end of the 19th century. Um, um, but, and, and the means by which it was brought about is very different than like a bird's flight. Um, but there were all sorts of, you know, attempts and designs that, like, uh, Leonardo da Vinci had like a sort of quasi helicopter design. Um, uh, yeah. And so like there have been various attempts, um, to bring about human flight, uh, over the centuries. Um, and um, yeah, so these were sort of guided not so much by like an understanding of aerodynamics, of course, because it didn't th that science didn't exist at the time. Um, but they were brought about by like an image of you know flying is really cool and it would be great if I could do it. Um, so yeah, it's uh, maybe in other situations um, invention is brought about by an image more than a conceptual grasp of a situation. Yeah, that's a great point, and and as we saw in the previous sections, it can also be like a relatively indeterminate image, like the, in the discussion of, um, the Imago and Lacan, it can be an image that, uh, sort of contains without really unifying, um, at least partially contradictory, uh, sub images or, or components. Yeah. So in that case, you had the, the good mother and the bad mother as sort of two aspects that are, um, contained in this um, image of the mother um, that are sort of interacting with each other but are not um, sort of fully resolved. Uh, so yeah, uh, th these sorts of images um, um, I think would probably be especially suitable for um, invention because this tension that is uh, contained in the image um, would, would sort of push towards a resolution. Okay, uh, so yeah, I, I think we should stop here. I went a little bit longer than I expected. Um, but that's fine because we had a, a good discussion. Um, so yeah, let's stop here uh, and pick up from there. Uh, oh yeah, I should mention, uh, so next week we can meet um, as usual, but the week after I can't uh, make the meeting. So uh, we'll, we'll miss that week um, just for reference, but I'll, I'll remind everyone uh, next week. But yeah, so next week is fine. Uh, two weeks from now, we'll have to skip the meeting. Uh, by the way, I have to make, miss uh, next week's meeting. Uh, okay. Um, yeah. So hopefully a few other people will will show up. Um, but if not, we can skip uh, that one as well. Um, but uh, yeah. So um, thanks for coming out, everyone. Thanks for your contributions, and um, hope to see most of you next week. Um, and if not, then uh, in three weeks.